0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Beath, a partner at Apex Digital and lead our tech growth team here in Europe. I'm joined by Mark Warner, recently anointed by the Sunday Times as the genius who saved Britain during COVID and by day, the CEO of Faculty, a leading British AI company.
1: Hi. Hi, Mark. It's really great to be here.
0: Mark, it would be great to, to get to know you a, a little bit better. How, you did a, a PhD in, in quantum computing. What, what inspired you to, to head into nanotechnology and, and quantum computing? How, how, how does someone get into that?
1: Well, I guess the path was set pretty early. So both my grandparents were science teachers and my parents were always very encouraging of like science and math. Um, and in particular, my granddad was a physics teacher. Uh, and so, uh, growing up, you know, I had a very uh, gentle encouragement and a lot of support in um, doing physics, and so I did sort of undergrad, um, undergrad in physics. And during my undergrad, I was always very interested, or particularly interested, in quantum mechanics. So, you know, this is one of the most fundamental theories that we have of the very like the behavior of small things in the universe, um, but You know, we it's probably fair to say that most physicists don't have, don't think we have a great understanding of the theory. So there's like tremendous mysteries in how you interpret um, the maths, which we know very well. Uh, And so that was extremely interesting. And then probably sort of around the time of my undergrad, um, quantum computing, like people had figured out how to harness these weird properties of quantum mechanics to do things that were um, particularly powerful around computation. And so it was just a very exciting field. It was all blowing up and um, felt like a very natural choice for um, to start doing a PhD in.
0: So, sounds like uh, uh, also a lot of fun times in the in the in the Warner household. Was it was it a bit like being in in the the Big Bang Theory? Was, was that sort of <laughs> you know some you know that was that was a kind of a, a you know big fight between the con- quantum mechanics tribe and the the string theory posse? You know,
1: yeah, not not in the Warner household, but certainly uh, during PhD and postdoc, uh, Big Bang Theory is is like weirdly accurate. it was definitely written by people who have spent time in physics departments for sure.
0: It's a bit. It's a bit like uh, people in in uh, tech investing watching Silicon Valley. Sometimes there are some bits that that, that uh, strike a bit too close to home. Um, but uh, maybe maybe segueing from you know from from quantum computing, what, what what led you from from quantum computing then into into AI?
1: So I did PhD in quantum computing and then research fellowship um, out at Harvard in in quantum sensing, which is a very similar field using quantum mechanics with very powerful sensing. And through that, I started to look into some of the algorithms that were in, used to interpret data. I started to get a sense of, you know, a, like a, a deeper understanding of what the field of AI was about. Because, you know, truthfully, when I was doing my PhD, um, it seemed like somewhat magical that, you know, you could even think about how you could build programs to make computers intelligent. Um, and so uh, I then sat down with the, with some AI textbooks, and started working through the maths and realised that actually it was exactly the same maths. I mean, sometimes in some cases easier than i have been doing in in physics.
0: So, so, so the switch to, the switch to AI was to was to you know sort of lighten the load a bit, have some easier maths to hand on <laughs> the, the quantum computing. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, uh, certainly that certainly on some of the maths side, and uh, um, and that meant you know, and and it, it was very clear to me like reading through papers that that AI was going to be the foundation of some of the most uh, interesting and profound scientific discoveries of our time, Like What is intelligence? And then also some of the most impactful technological applications. Um, And so that felt just like a wonderful opportunity to be part of uh, a very interesting field.
0: Maybe before we kind of dive deep into it just to to level set for everybody, there, you know there's a lot of confusion about AI, a lot of terms bandied around. You've got general AI, applied AI, machine learning, data science. you know sort of what what's what in a, in a nutshell?
1: So I like to divide things out and try and have um, a deep like decent, clear definitions. And so for me, data science is the application of the scientific method to non-standard data sets. Um, So outside laboratory um, conditions, that means you need, you know, because the signal to noise in the real world is often uh, lower than you can get in a lab. That means you need very large data sets and very sophisticated algorithms to pick out patterns. And so what in the the execution of data science, the tools of artificial intelligence that we developed in the context of artificial intelligence are very useful. And so for me, AI is the field of getting computers to do things that are considered intelligent when done by humans, or at least a colloquial definition of it.
0: Um, Okay, and and I suppose it's it's situations where to get a human to go through all the data they could, it would just take them a very long time. Often. So it's, you know, and and maybe they wouldn't do it as well. So it's some combination of speed and quality or?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it like obviously it varies according to problem type um but the so AI can in principle tackle any problem a human can, but its relative to performance to a human tends to be uh like to up towards human level or even superior in exactly the sorts of problems you're talking about so you know where a person could never ever imagine reading all of Wikipedia um in a lifetime, an AI can do it. You know, in in well, a few days of training, let's say.
0: And and just to just to clarify between so I think that was helpful at unpacking a little bit between data science and, and AI. But but let's say within AI, what, what's the difference between applied AI, general AI? What are we talking about here?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a spectrum of tasks. So uh, you know, when people say AI, there's a natural inclination to think of like one giant brain that solves every problem. Now that. That sort of giant brain version of AI, a single algorithm that can be applied to many tasks, that's what we call a general artificial intelligence. It can solve problems in a whole but variety of environments. On the other hand, there are much more constrained AI. So, um, like let's say the latest algorithms to uh, um, like Alpha Zero, AlphaGo um, that that uh, uh, beat, recently beat the world champions at Go. Those are only useful in go, and well actually uh, caveat it alpha go was only useful in go Alpha zero turned out to be useful across a much uh, broader range of games like things like chess and checkers and whatever. but nevertheless, they're constrained to relatively small narrow environments, and so that's the distinction between general and narrow, and then the distinction between a sort of research AI and applied AI is really just about. Um, the ultimate goal of the, the work. So uh, a lot of um, incredible AI companies, uh, people like DeepMind, huge inspiration to us, um, spend a lot of their energy researching and looking forward to drive forward the scientific state of the art. Um, however, our feeling at faculty is that, um, you know, we want to specialize in the application of the technology. So doing our bit to push forward the state of the art. We have our own R&D and we, we work in research collaborations, but our primary focus, the thing we pride ourselves on most is um, ensuring that the technology delivers value for people, touches people's lives in some way, whether that's making products cheaper, making services better. Um,
0: we've we've uh, maybe alluded to it a little bit earlier when we were talking about what, what kind of things you know, can can AI be, you know, be applied to, but, but maybe before we get into some some more practical examples, just you know, what are the if someone's looking at a problem, which you know, whatever company they are, they're sort of thinking, oh, could AI help me here? What are the kind of attributes of the problem, or the sort of you know that that they should be kind of looking out for to 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 think about using AI?
1: Totally. Well, I, I like the way you frame the question as well, because fundamentally, we don't think that companies should go around um, trying to solve AI problems, like. We, that, that's just a bad way. You, you're. It's you know, to someone with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. They should start from the business challenge. They should start from what are the critical issues for their business, and then some of those challenges will have components to them that are AI can provide a totally transformational difference. And so, inside the set of important business challenges, you should be looking for things where there are large data sets available, where there are, for instance, lots and lots of products uh, that are updated on a regular basis, very complicated supply chain, um, where you have to make demand forecasts or predictions, um, large volumes of text, these kind of situations, so lots of data. And then often it turns out to be like, a circumstance where there's regular or rapid decisions where it's simply impossible for a human to continually consume and, and generate new uh, decisions on a sufficient speed, um, and so those tens of circumstances tend to be where AI can like automate an aspect.
0: Got it. So it's so it's a bit of a, a bit of a combination of both the type of the problem, which may be where there's a lot of data that you need to to kind of get through, or where that, where data can be helpful to getting to a better answer. But at the same time also sometimes things that can be dynamically updated where you're just not going to have someone doing it constantly you know it's something that can keep on being needed and and evolving you know over time
1: in the context of the web um those problems occur all the time so you know every website has lots of information um about customers lots of customers working on them you know and so that's that's one of the reasons why um AI has now become relevant to almost every Maybe company.
0: just to, to um, I, mean, I don't know if you want to think a little bit about the range of things, that, the range of areas that the that faculty focuses on, but, but then maybe within that sort of pick out an example or two just to make it a bit more real to people, a couple of sort of case studies.
1: Totally. Um, so, well, faculty itself has has four focuses. So, um, we work in uh, consumer um, energy and energy transition. Uh Health and life sciences, and government, and so those are our our, our four primary um, uh, industry verticals. Um, I, and then let's take, I mean, well, probably most recently we've been um, most well known for the work we did with the NHS around COVID, and that's a very nice example of where um, AI can inform totally critical and very impactful problems. So. Uh, obviously, as everyone will know, at the start of COVID, um, the NHS is in a very difficult position. It's one of the largest employers in the world. It's tackling a new disease that nobody in the world understands very well. And that's changing uh, the well, both the dynamics of the disease, the dynamics of the population, and our understanding of the disease are changing on an almost daily basis at the start. If you are then faced with the challenge of um, how do you provide for patients most effectively, that is an enormously complicated um, problem to have to solve. I mean, legitimately, probably one of the most complicated problems that any organization has faced in peacetime. Um, And so we happen to be working with a a relatively small part of the NHS, NHSX, um, at the time, Uh, who were sort of focused on digital and data and helping the NHS um, improve their use of of those kind of technologies. And we're able to help in building um, robust data pipelines and then dashboards and models to predict across the entire country for every hospital, um, the likely COVID patients, and then the likely use of different bed types and, and resources required for hospitals and so that meant that instead of the nhs um having to distribute things effectively in a you know in a very tricky and difficult circumstance with all kinds of like you know effective fog of war around them they suddenly had clean insight and could make um really effective prioritization decisions to then uh help patients as much as possible
0: what would be an uh, another good area that, that you've been spending time in
1: yeah, so maybe one in the more in a, in the more private sector context. Um obviously the ripples of COVID are playing out across the supply chain. And any company that makes anything is having to deal with complications from how to ship their goods, how to uh source them from new and different places, how to uh maintain the supply to their customers um in given all of these complicated circumstances and uncertainties. And of course, that is exactly the sort of problem where um, uh, AI can be incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful, incredibly helpful. Um, So we've been working with uh, manufacturing agent um, companies and retailers to help them more effectively predict the um, supply of components and then um, optimize their inventories in the case of manufacturing companies, or to uh, optimize their discounting and um, uh, and uh, promotions in the case of retailers, uh, to enable them to one make much more effective use of what they uh, of the resources that they do get in, and to service their customer demand more effectively.
0: So I suppose tra- translating it translating for to a, for a business person it's 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 sort of making more revenue and doing it with you know more profitability. So ultimately
1: we were able to sh- to uh create 40% um uh, reduction in inventory uh with exactly the same wow. uh, performance which translates for this particular organization into tens if not hundreds of millions of uh dollars of um released capital.
0: Sounds sounds good. And uh, and how, and in terms of the, the sort of job you guys do, once you've once you've you know been working with a customer, you've helped them. Uh, let's say you know the data quality is right. You've implemented your software. You've deployed this cutting edge AI. You know what what happens then? Do you sort of cut and run at that point? Are the are the customers able to hand it handle it on their own going forward? How, how does that work?
1: Well, we offer we generally offer customers a choice. Um, uh, historically, uh, the Field of the deployment of ML of AI, what was called ML ops, was relatively um, backwards. And, uh, and, and often customers' understanding of the complexities of deploying AI was relatively um uh, was relatively lagging as well. And so there was, you know, you come to the end of a project and you historically hand over the code and Ultimately, it turned out to be much harder to put that into action than um, customers ever expected. And so what we've started doing over the last few years is um, what we call AI as a service. And so customers have been really keen for us to help them maintain and update these models over time. And it, it's actually like a much smarter way of doing things because it, um it ensures that everyone's incentives are aligned. Like you know, the model has to work for the long term and generate business value for the long term. And so, we think that this model of AI as a service is actually, you know, just a net better way of deploying uh, AI for our customers.
0: And and more broadly, how do we try and how do we make sure that AI doesn't go off the rails? I mean, whether it's with you know garbage in, garbage out, with you know, with bad data or you know more misguided parts of the internet. You know leading AI to become you know unethical. You know what's wh- wh- what's your take? How do we how do we protect against that?
1: Well, we think this is a totally critical uh, field, so we call it AI safety, um, and it's something that faculty we've uh, worked on for many years. Uh, so we've always taken the view that ultimately users of AI, whether that be Sort of companies or citizens or patients have a right to demand that AI is safe. Like, you know, if I, if you, if you, if if someone sells you a car, it comes with like very explicit safety standards and um, models. um, You know, I think it's only right that technology um, companies should stand behind their models and include um, the safety aspects to it. And so when we think about AI safety, we divide it into four categories, Uh, make sure the algorithm is fair, private, robust, and explainable. So obviously, fair and private um, are geared towards a lot of the the more uh, sort of well-known examples of, um, of problems with AI. But robust and explainable are also um, incredibly important. So, uh,
0: probably particularly to the people that you're working for at customers, because they they want to know why is it you know why is it working and have some comfort in in understanding how it's working. Exactly. And then and then obviously for companies that are more you know operating in more regulated environments then you know they also need to be able to explain to regulators that that they, they have that, that there's something here that is you know uh, making sense yeah, as well
1: i think that's exactly right i mean it's actually an underappreciated point that people often think about explainability as simply um, the kind of the legitimate thing that you need to be able to show a regulator but actually, explainability is much more powerful than that. It lets you make the algorithm itself better, which is uh, very useful, and it helps users trust it more. So, um, you know, if you if you're uh, working alongside an algorithm, using it to inform your decisions, let's say in the NHS context, um, you immediately want to know why it's making the predictions that it is. And if you can sense check the underlying causal mechanisms that are um, uh, leading the algorithm to to make its predictions, then um, you're much more able to trust it.
0: Got it. And now, I, there's there's a question that you, you probably get asked all the time, but but I can't resist. So here goes: how, how do we how do we avoid accidentally having AI take over and and decide that you know humans are getting in the way and, and should be eliminated and you know, you read books like uh, Nick Bostrom's *Superintelligence*, and, and you see that you know there are you know serious academics who are genuinely genuinely concerned by it, by some of these questions. Um, and obviously, more popularly, people like you know Elon Musk as well. How, how, what's what's your take on on you know, is this something that we should be really worried about? And and what's the what steps should you know humanity be taking to protect themselves?
1: So I do think it's a it's a very important question. Um, I think it. It is also very important to make a clean distinction between narrow AI that we're doing these days and the general AI that is really much more dangerous and, and much more complicated. So there is absolutely no chance of a you know something like Alpha Go, you know, ever, ever um becoming in any way a relevant uh concern. Um, It's a a narrow AI specific to um, exactly the sort of uh, like to play and go. And it it would be utterly ludicrous to worry um, about some of these more uh, long-term concerns. So... That, I think everyone has to bear that in mind when they're sort of examining what's going on in the world. So games, nar- narrow
0: AI should be should be pretty should be pretty safe. And yeah. um, well, general I mean, AI? narrow
1: AI has its set has a set of concerns around it. It has its own issues, but
0: it's it's less likely to take over the world. <laughs> it's definitely
1: a, completely impossible for it to take over the world.
0: So, um, uh, but what about what about general AI?
1: General AI um, is it's a much harder question. So you know, there are very many smart people or. Actually, probably less than there should be, but still um still some. Uh working on the question of how do you ensure that um an algorithm like a very powerful general intelligence, if you were to create it, it has sensible values. And if you um were to give it a set of values, how does it stay like stay aligned to those values over the long term? And um our contribution, so a faculty um We've taken the view that uh, there's lots and lots of very interesting work going on in academic departments uh, around these kinds of questions. Um, But we think our contributions can be focused around the very near term. So if you look back at the history of science, lots of times breakthroughs have come from working on very concrete problems. So we're going to tackle the very near term safety problems and then grow our expertise up from there, and hopefully be able to contribute to the the wider field of AI safety that way. Now, there are other really great strategies that is very good for the world that other organizations are pursuing a much more sort of philosophical route to these things. Um, But that's not where we think our competitive advantage lies in in helping out here. Comparative advantage.
0: And and as well as grappling with these Big questions. T- taking a step back to, to day-to-day life, what, what's it like as a, a leader of a high-growth tech company?
1: Uh, well, it has its upsides and its downsides. So, you know, when you start out, particularly somebody like me, I came straight from academia um, uh, into um, uh, building a startup. You have this vision of, of what it can be, and all the excitement, and you've probably read a few blogs and maybe a book or two about entrepreneurship. And then reasonably quickly, the reality of uh, operating in the real world hits you, um, and there's much more firefighting than you ever expect. There's lots and lots going on, um, and the sort of uh, the 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 limitations of, um, of starting out become, uh, like very apparent. And then hopefully, you know, if, if things go well, um, you manage to bring on board some great investors, you manage to build a really great team and you like, it becomes less and less about firefighting and more about thinking about the longer term, more about the strategy, um, more about trying to see what the art of the possible is to really push, uh, push forward your domain. And that can, that's very satisfying. Um And so fortunately in faculty, we've been blessed with, uh, you know, just like a totally, totally wonderful team, incredibly talented colleagues, uh, which on a day-to-day basis is for me, at least the most motivating thing about coming to work. And also, uh, Wonderful investors, um, uh, and very helpful, understanding, and supportive for for both in both the long and the short term, and that's, which has been just totally key for us.
0: Let's maybe come back to the, the investor sort of side in a minute, but first, just focusing on the the talent at the at the company. How do you how do you attract and retain um, the kind of world class people that, that that you have?
1: Well, I mean. Faculty has been on a fairly unique journey. So we actually started out as a program to help PhDs, academic PhDs, become commercial data scientists. Pretty quickly, we started getting applications for about 10% of the UK's maths, physics and engineering PhDs. And that meant we could be highly selective on who came onto the education program and then Highly selective about um, hiring uh, from that pool ourselves. Now, of course, that pool is is we run that fellowship as an open uh, as a as a product, so any company um, can come and uh, put projects on that on that fellowship. and it's a wonderful way for them to hire incredibly high potential data scientists. But it's put us in a in a really great position um, regarding uh, our own team. And we've been fortunate enough that, you know, if you have some good people, it attracts other good people and things tend to snowball from there. And, and,
0: what, and what about maybe the, the the sort of the culture and the, the kind of opportunities that people get to work on, or are the, are those sort of key ingredients as well, or what, what else is in the mix that is making it a...
1: Absolutely, I mean, we work very hard to try and ensure that the work we're doing is impactful, um, technically sophisticated, uh, and um, uh, that people are constantly learning internally. And I mean, it's important to me personally, as a, that's the kind of organization I want to work in. It's the kind of organization um, that lots of talented people want to work in. And so uh, I think that has definitely been a, um, a part of the reason so many good people have stuck around over time.
0: And circling back to the the investors that you've partnered with, not just Apex, but also great earlier stage investors like Local Globe and a raft of high profile angels like Skype co-founder Jan Talen. What what were you looking for in, in your partners, and and how has it turned out so far?
1: Um. So we've always been in the fortunate position to be able to be quite selective about our investors, and um, one. Uh, from, from the very early days, although there were <laughs> some, some, uh, meetings that, um, I remember when, you know, back in the very, very early days of like a three person startup and various London bankers asking me for spreadsheet projections for five, <laughs> five years out, the sort of conventional <laughs> horror show, um, early, uh, uh, you know, bad meetings with, uh, with, let's say angels that were not going to be a good fit for us um but yeah so uh you know we've always done our homework with investors referencing them with other companies trying to get a sense of what they're really like um and whether they actually deliver so you know uh, for, for for inexperienced entrepreneurs like i you know i was when we started faculty there's um investors will always promise a lot and whether they deliver or not on the other side, um, is, you yeah, know, when I speak to some of my friends is, uh, it's much less clear. And we've been lucky. Uh, well, I guess, you know, we did do our homework. So, so it's not entirely luck, but, um, it has been a wonderful experience working with our investors. Like, you know, well, I mean, one of the early memories that stands out of, uh, of, yeah, we so we obviously got to know apex and uh, eventually took took their money and you know, with a bunch of promises around um, how the operational excellence partners could help us improve our business and how supportive they'd be as an investor. Uh, and then and so then the other side of the investment sort of thinking, well, is this is this really going to be true? What are we actually? How's it actually going to work out? And one of the very early examples was we came to talk to. Um, one of the operational excellence partners about um, uh, supply chains and a, a particular customer. And um, we emailed, and within an hour, we had a conversation with the supply chain expert who was currently in-house. In uh, By the next day, we had a, a conversations with another couple of um, supply chain experts that they'd found in their network. And then finally, later the next day, we had an introduction to... The person that had previously done the job at the client that we were pitching to. And that just struck me as a totally, totally ridiculous, uh, and unexpected level of, um, uh, assistance that I just, and it, I, I wasn't involved. This was the, like the team had reached out. To, to APEX.
0: and and I, actually I, for transparency I wasn't involved I don't I don't remember much of this uh, I don't remember much of this either so I I think that level of of kind of you know integration interaction is such that's just happening in a in a fluid way and and that uh, and that also we're under promising and over delivering rather than the other uh, way around <laughs> yeah um, and and maybe b- before we wrap up what, what are you most excited about at, at faculty for for
1: twenty twenty two well all you know ultimately um computers are, are tools to help people you know steve jobs used to talk about a computer being a, like a bicycle for the mind and for us the really big question is how do you help how do you use ai to help increase human understanding of the world um that's a yeah you know, obviously a really really hard problem humans are very smart When compared to computers, especially for the kind of big and gnarly problems that um, uh, people that are listening to this podcast will be uh, thinking about tackling, Um, you know, how do they make their business better? How how do you make government better? Even even more sort of like even some of the larger questions: how do we you know fix the climate stuff like this? Now, AI won't you can't just put data in and expect an answer out, but For particular sub-questions of that, obviously, AI can be extremely helpful. How do you optimize a wind turbine? How do you help the NHS make the best use of its resources? How do I uh, best serve my customers with the um, products that I have in my inventory at the moment? Um, The really interesting thing is if you build uh, models for a bunch of those sub-questions, you can start connecting them together and um, being able to offer strategic insight to some of the more holistic questions for an organization. Um, And that's incredibly exciting, Uh, very hard, but we call the result the intelligence layer. Um, And so we've already made a bunch of breakthroughs in how to do this well. And there's uh, a lot more to come in how do you sort of take an existing software stack, add an intelligence layer on top of it and use that to give humans the best well to automate a bunch of simple things so that humans have time and then how do you take how do you give them insight into the really complicated decisions and use the extra time that's been freed up and the extra insight to make you know uh, more impact in the world and that is a very exciting journey
0: perfect uh, well, look, I, w- I was uh, I was delighted the Apex funds were able to invest in faculty last year in 2021, and and thank you so much, Mark, for joining this edition of the podcast. Hopefully, our, our listeners have a better idea about uh, AI and and have appreciated the the fun run from uh, the Big Bang Theory to general AI taking over the world and uh, and everything in between. Uh, thanks so much, everybody.